So during our men's prayer breakfast uh, this past Tuesday morning, uh, one of our men brought up uh, dealing with growing pains in their child. And I don't know, I'm sure anyone here who's been a parent uh, remembers that, ah, you know, mommy, daddy, come and check on me, and that pain in the kid's leg, and, and just feeling that pain there. If you don't have any children, well, I'm sure you remember maybe whenever you were a kid, and you remember that pain, just that growing pain, Ah, you know, because growing up kind of hurts sometimes. As those bones grow and stretch, there is some pain. So today we're going to be covering the entire childhood and kind of young adulthood of Jesus in one sermon. And you're like, man, this is going to be a long one. I'm glad Miss Marilyn brought some really good snacks because we got a long one coming. Sadly, we only have these 14-some verses of, of Jesus' childhood, but we're going to see uh, just that uh, we're not given a ton of information here, but we're given some key insights of what it was like for Jesus to navigate being fully God and fully man, having his heavenly father and his earthly mother and father as well. So join us as we read God's word. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 52. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And when he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was sub- er, and went and he went down with them and came to Nazareth, Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God. And man, let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this insight uh, to your growing up on earth. Um, Lord God, we know uh, that it's tough to grow up. There's just a lot of changes as we grow up uh, that we have to navigate. And God, we know that you are able to understand what it's like to grow up, uh, what it's like to mature, what it's like to grow uh, in stature and strength. And as we as we go through this scripture today, help us to, to understand more about just how how much you get us, how much you understand about us, how relatable that you are to us, Lord. And help us to learn more about you and, and how, you've na- how you navigated being fully God and fully man on earth. And may you open up our hearts and minds to, to glorify you, to see you in all of your glory uh, as much as we can and to learn more about the depths of who you are, Lord. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you. Amen. All right, so today we're going to see some of these growing pains that Christ experienced while growing up on earth, and we're going to see how he grew in his humanity, all the while continuing to be fully God. So just keep that in the back of your mind. So the first understanding we get is, number one, Christ being fully God and fully man grew in strength. He grew in strength. I'm going to reread verses 39 and 40. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, 
to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So we see after they did everything, if you remember last week, they did the law of purification, they dedicated Jesus, the Mary offered the, 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 the two birds instead of the lamb because they were in poverty at this point. And so Luke gives us this overarching verse that just kind of describes Jesus from 40 days old till 12. He just, he's growing in wisdom. And so he grows in strength as well. And it's difficult to consider Jesus needing to grow into strength. I mean, if you remember, we went through Colossians uh, last year, and Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says this. This is talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So this same God that created everything, that holds all things together, is now fully man. So the same God who walks earth, and he's having to learn to toddle and walk and crawl, and, and he's learning how to, how to work with his hands with his dad, who's most likely a carpenter. Uh, and, and so, this, but, but he's still the same God that's holding gravity where it's supposed to be. He's still the same God who holds the universe where it's supposed to be. He's still the same God that keeps, you know, meteors from destroying the earth. He's still the same God that continues to protect us and do that as he walks this earth. I mean, how incredible is that? And so Luke's primary focus here is to proverbially, that's a hard word, I need to work on that one, uh, to put some flesh on Christ here. So, you know, uh, they're kind of understanding, okay, Jesus is God, but he wants to make sure that he's telling this Gentile audience, as we'll talk about later, that Jesus is also fully man. He's having to learn how to do things like we did. And how, how amazing is that? But we're not, told, we're not told that he just grew in strength, that he didn't just grow in stature and, and getting bigger, but he also grew in wisdom. And that's really tough for us to grasp because the same God who created everything, who knows everything, everyone, the amount of hairs on your head, that same God is now having to learn wisdom on earth as a man as well. And here we see this collision of two distinct natures uh, and, and how we have to maintain them in two different hands. Th they don't intermingle, as some heresies say. They, they're not just one or the other. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. But they're two distinct natures. And, and we see his divine nature at work and his human nature at work all throughout the, the book of Luke. And, and one does not negate the other. But we see his divine nature understand or kind of inform his is human nature in things like Luke 5.22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Any of you all perceive the thoughts of others? You know, that's a divine ability that, is, that Jesus has. So that's his divine nature informing his human nature, and he is working through that. His divine nature we'll see at work uh, in the next few chapters as well, that it's going to be in his miraculous healings, in his casting out of demons. That his, is his divinity working and informing his human nature, but they are still separate because his human nature we still see fully present as well because what does he need? He needs naps. He needs breaks. He needs rest. He runs out of energy, so he still has this human body that, I that is there. And if you do some church history research, we will see that this was the understanding of true Orthodox Christianity from the beginning. Uh, it, the, 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 uh, obviously, we see this taught in the book of John. We see it taught throughout Paul's letters as well, but it, it, it was formally enshrined at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 A.D. This council was called together to address the heresies of people saying, oh, he's only human, or only, he's only God, or the two intermingle in some 
chimeric type of way, and just a lot of false teaching. And so the council affirmed that Christ is the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. So 100% God and 100% man. He's not, and, and how that blows our mind, he's God. And so we don't have to understand it. I know that's one of those things just like, how is God three persons but one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? He's God. If we can understand him, he's probably not worth worshiping. We want a God that we can't understand. That's beyond our abilities, because if, if we can't understand him, he's like us. And what kind of help is he going to be able to do for us if we can understand everything about him? So that's where faith comes in. And I'd rather have my faith in someone that I can't understand fully than someone I can. Uh, you know. But the, so this council was really, really important to allow us to see heresies. So now all of a sudden, once we knew, okay, Jesus is fully God, fully man, anything outside that was heresy. It was really easy to see, oh, that's false. Oh, that, that's wrong. And so this was important. Before moving forward, though, I think it's really important to understand one other thing as we read the Gospels. For you that, that maybe have read the Gospels multiple times, you've grown up in church, you've, you, you've heard the, 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 the Christmas account told in Matthew, you've heard it told in Luke, you've, you've seen it addressed in all sorts of ways, you get to uh, this point, and you're like, wait a second, we, we missed something. There, there, there was something important that we didn't address uh, as we went through the Christmas account, as we went through Luke, and, and we, we heard about these wonderful things that we don't see in Matthew as well, about the, the angel Gabriel appearing to, to Mary and to, uh, to uh, Zechariah, and, and we're seeing the prophecy of John the Baptist. We're seeing Mary's Magnificat and, and her song. Uh, we see all those things that we don't see in Matthew, but there's something in Matthew 2 couple of things that are big that we don't see here, and, and if you remember the wise men, we haven't seen the magi here. Uh, we haven't seen the escape to Egypt here. We haven't seen King Herod's slaughter of the innocent. Um, they, they didn't appear here, and so omissions like this can make some criticize the Bible and say, well, if God wrote the Bible, why are these, these glaring omissions that we see here? But one cannot miss that although, like, although this is the inerrant word of God, it is the very word of God, God used man to write it, and he had certain audiences that were directed, this writing was directed to, and if we re remember, Matthew was written to who? The Jews. So Matthew spends a lot of time talking about Old Testament prophecies. Jesus, or Luke does some, but Matthew hammers out Old Testament prophecy after Old Testament prophecy, because th would, th would the Gentiles have known much about Old Testament prophecy? No. The Gentiles, who Luke writes to, have no idea about the Old Testament. They're, they're very new to this, their error would have been this whole Greek mythology thing. And so that's why Luke hammers out Jesus is fully human. And he spends that, Jesus is a man. Jesus is man. Jesus is man. And he continues to tell them that because they have all these pagan gods that are chimeras or they're this or that. And he wants to let them know, no, he is fully God. He is fully man. Whereas Matthew, we, we see in Hosea 11.1, Hosea out of Egypt, I've called my son. We see that prophecy being fulfilled. So this the Magi, uh, you know, seeing that prophecy fulfilled and, and, and seeing uh, that, that they, he had to escape to Egypt in order for that other prophecy to be true, Matthew's hammering those out. And so we kind of come to this thing where we see some heterogeneity in the Gospels. They're not exactly the same. So how do, we, how do we wrestle with that? How do we grapple with that when we have four Gospels and there's some synergism, but there's other heterogeneity in there? And we're like, well, you know, wh what is this? But what we see, despite the heterogeneity, it's, it's uncanny how consistent they are and how they fit together. And I don't know if you all have ever read Cold Case Christianity by J. Warner Wallace, and he really addresses this particular issue that may come up in apologetic circles or may come up from atheists that come to you and say, well, 
you know, this, this isn't even included in that account. How can you believe it? He lives, leaves that out. That's a big issue, big deal. And he actually claims he was a, he, he was a homicide detective. And that was his job, was to, to listen to witnesses who would come and tell about this crime. And what he says is, uh, after he studied, he, he came, uh, he approached the Gospels with the same type of thing he would do with, the wit- with witnesses to a crime or something like that. And he, and he wrote this, and it was really interesting to see. He really turns the Gospel critical scholars on their heads with this argument. What he says is corroborating witnesses, corrobor- corroborating evidence, never is fully homogeneous or homogeneous. It's never exactly the same. If you get multiple witnesses and they come to you and they give you the exact same story to a T, it's verbatim, then you can tell that they all got together before they came to you to tell you that story. And all of a sudden now, like, it looks like, it, like there's no holes in it. Everything matches up to a T and it's like, oh, there's no variance. They all tell the exact same vantage point. He was like, that's how you tell that they're false witnesses because there's no way that multiple witnesses at different perspectives are going to give you the exact same story, the exact same account. And when he says, like, corroborating evidence is actually what you see is this witness is standing here, sees these things. This other witness is standing over here and sees these things and maybe hears something different than that one does. And this one over here is, and so you get these multiple witnesses and they come together and they all give you their account and you put them together like a puzzle. And that's how we approach the Gospels. We have different perspectives. Matthew's coming from a Jewish perspective, and he's bringing you the gospel, which is 100% true. Everything he writes is 100% true, but it's coming from that perspective, whereas Luke is writing toward the Gentiles, and so he's coming from that perspective. And so we can put them together, and it is beautiful how they fit together perfectly. And that's why we have to take the whole counsel of Scripture together. If you take it out of context, you can do some really ho- real big harm. Many denominations that are out there have done that. They've grabbed one Scripture, taken it out of context, and not apply the rest of Scripture to it. And so the fact uh, that the Gospels are not verbatim, they have some heterogeneity, and yet remain remarkably consistent, actually serves to show that they are more reliable and not less reliable. They show that they are more true and not less true. So next time somebody says something like that to you, remember that fact, that the fact that they are heterogeneous, yet they go together perfectly, they're consistent, actually makes them more true, actually makes them more true. And I pray that we always hold Scripture in high regard and understand it to be the inner word of God. Getting back to our Scripture, sorry for that little uh, interlude. I just wanted to make sure because we kind of skipped some big stuff there in Christ's growth there. So number two, we see that Christ being fully God and fully man grew in subjection. Verses 41 through 51, we're going to read 41 and 42 first. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. So the Passover, I mean, we've mentioned it some in the past. Time would not suffice for me to go through this in the way that it deserves. I mean, this is a couple of sermons probably by itself. But the Passover, it was instituted in Exodus 12, 1 through 19. And it's when the Israelites were set free from slavery in Egypt. There were 10 plagues placed upon Egypt in order to, to free Israel as Moses leads the people out. And that 10th plague was the Passover that, w- that happened. And so what this Passover was, that, that the destroyer, we don't know if it was the angel of death, we don't know if it was the Lord himself, but he, it's called the destroyer. And the destroyer comes and kills all of the firstborns in the land of Egypt. But Israel is spared from this, this plague by sacrificing a lamb. Uh, just see the, the, the 
comparison there to the lamb who died to take away our sins. And this lamb is sacrificed and the blood is placed on the doorposts above the home so that the destroyer passes over their homes. And this lamb was a foreshadowing of Christ who is the sacrificial lamb who is to come. And we see John one twenty nine. John the Baptist says this later in the, as Jesus starts his ministry. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, or the sin of the world. How beautiful is this parallel that we see Jesus at 12 years old approaching Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of the Passover, which points to his future death on that cross. And just, just gives you chills to think about this little boy coming in to celebrate the Passover, which, which points to his sacrificial death on the cross. And now we know that because of that death on the cross, as we look forward toward the end of this book as we study, because of his death on the cross, his blood is like the blood that was applied to the doorposts. His now death, hell, the eternal damnation can pass over us if we are in Christ, if we are covered by the blood of the Lamb. Praise be to God for that, my friends. Praise be to God. Moving forward, we get to verse 42. Saying that again, it says, Anyone who was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And so that, now that he's 12 years old, so we've seen a fast forward, 40 days, now he's, now he's 12 years old. And at this point, he's beginning to make that transition into manhood. So 13 was kind of that official manhood rite of passage in Jewish culture. But at this point at 12, usually that year before they make this final transition into manhood, his parents would likely take him to the temple to show him around, say, hey, this is what to expect, and tell, tell him some Jewish history inform him about customs, help him be ready for what is to come. And this trip was also significant because he would start to learn more and more about this Jewish culture. Moving on to verses 43 through 45, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. They began searching, or began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. As we read this, uh, I think um, the thought that comes to my, my head is, how did they lose Jesus? Like, this is, this is pretty big. And I mean, and my dad liked humor. I mean, yeah, you hate to just hate to joke about the Bible. But, but you're looking here. Can you put yourself in their position? You know, you're Mary and Joseph. You're entrusted with the Son of God. Could you imagine going to God and being like, we lost your kid. You know, I'm sorry, God. We, we lost your one and only son that you sent to save the world, and we can't find him. You know what I mean? Like, how terrifying would that be to think you have to go to God and say, dude, we lost your kid. I don't know what happened. We thought he was with us. Like, that would have been tough. But luckily, God knows where he is. Luckily, God is omniscient. He's omnipresent. He, he knows what's going on. God, was, God wasn't searching for him. Jesus was in God's house. He was safe in his father's house, which we'll see here in a little while. But these poor parents, they sure were frantic, and they sure were searching. God wasn't nervous, but they most certainly were they had already went a, j a day's journey, which is like 25 miles or so in that day and, and, and age, 20 to 25 miles. And they get, you know, er, you know they, they, they go that far. It's nightfall. They're all getting ready to camp out. Where's Jesus? I thought he was with you. Oh, I thought he was with you. I thought he was with the kids. I thought, you know, they went in caravans, if you look back in this, this day and age. They, they would want to do that for, for multiple reasons. First, for safety. You know, there were vagabonds, people that would, that would come and try to take your stuff. So they went for safety. And they were all heading back to their, to their land. And so they're in this big group. You know, sometimes kids went with kids, and 
men with men, women with women, women with women. And so either way, they have no clue until this point, and they know they're going to spend this night under the stars without their son, just nervous at that point. Moving on to 46 and 47. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. As you can see, they didn't just sleep one night without him. They slept two. It was the third day when they finally found him. And they had to travel all the way back to Jerusalem and start searching again. We're not told how many places they went to search for him. We're not told, but we do know that they, they we're going to see in the next verse, they were uh, searching uh, in great distress. So it was definitely frantically, uh, they, they were struggling. But, it, but finally, they, they find him. And where do they find him? In the temple. So he's in the temple. Uh, and he's... He's sitting among the teachers. So if we look back, like the rabbis would, would after the feast was over, they would all kind of gather and they'd talk about theology. This was their time to all kind of get together, rabbis from different lands, and, and they kind of just had, they kind of nerded out on theology is pretty much what they would do. And they would talk about theology, talk about the Bible, about, you know, kind of like a, a pastor's conference, but for rabbis uh, at that point. And then Jesus just joins the pastor's conference and sits down and starts answering questions and asking questions and just this depth of knowledge, they're like, where did this kid come from? He's 12 years old. He's not even considered officially a man yet, and yet he's teaching these guys a, a thing or two, asking some questions that maybe they can't answer like he did a lot as a man. And we see him ask questions all the time. The Pharisees are like, I don't know, you know? Um, and so remember our last point, Christ grew in wisdom, and we see this wisdom in action now. And these learned theological scholars are being amazed and impressed by this 12-year-old boy. Now the reckoning happens in verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. It's an interesting word, astonished. We'll talk about that in a second. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. So this, this word astonished, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting word. So why were they astonished or marveled about this? And, I mean, obviously, one part, they're, they're looking at their 12-year-old boy, and he's sitting with these rabbis who are like the cream of the crop theologians just sitting there hanging out, shooting the breeze, talking with them, and they're looking at him with their eyes open wide like, where did this kid come from, and whose kid is this? Because this kid's a prodigy. He's able to do some amazing things. I know John MacArthur talks about these different people in history that could learn multiple languages by the time they were four, and all these different, like, pe- there's been tons of, like, child prodigies that could play the piano behind their back. I mean, it was just, like, just be able to do these amazing things, and yet, here Jesus is. He's this child prodigy. They're like, wow, what, what is going on here? But either way, this astonishment wears off pretty quick because Mary goes into mom mode. And, and she kind of scolds him a little bit for not being with them. Obviously, she's been flipping out. It's, it's uh, almost it's three to the third day now, and, and she hasn't known where her son was. And he's 12. He's not even considered a man yet. So, I mean, you know, the, she's nervous. What could have happened to him? Could have been eaten by a wild animal. I mean, she doesn't know at this point. And you can see that I love that Luke doesn't correct her in this. Like, when, when you look... She says, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you. Does that ring a bell? Like when, when she says that, you don't see Luke throw in there like, by the way, Joseph wasn't his real father. Like, you know, God is his father. But we'll see how Luke leaves that and lets it hang for a second until that comes into play. So here we also see some difficulty in Joseph and Mary raising the son of God. It's not an easy path to raise this, the son of God. And we see some growing pains for them even as parents here, too. So then comes verse four, verses 49 and 50. And he, being Jesus, said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? 
and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. So here we see the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus clearly, clearly defined. Uh, his two natures are colliding in a practical way. So he has two earthly parents that he's in subjection to, yet he's got his heavenly father in whom he is in subjection to as well. And this is quite a dilemma that he's in. He's in his father's house, and he looks at his earthly parents and spiritually understanding, I'm, didn't you know I'd be at home? Like, I, I'm at home. You know, yes, we've, I've got my home with you, but I, I've got my home with God. I've spent all eternity with my father. Like, my, he's much more my father than you all are my parents are on earth. We have been coexisting as, as the Trinity since the beginning of time, forever, for all eternity. And I've been with you all for 12 years. I mean, I'm at home with my father. There was nowhere where he felt more comfortable than with his father and in the presence of his father. As theologian John Nolan asserts, he had no intention of dishonoring either of his sonships. He was fully God and fully man, and he wanted to honor his earthly parents, but he also wanted to honor his heavenly Father. And so these first recorded words of Jesus, the first words we have of Jesus in the Bible that he said, are often taken as disrespectful to his parents. And people read him in a certain tone, and, and they're like, oh, you know, like he's being a smart aleck or something. But we know God doesn't sin. Jesus doesn't sin. And so we actually see that his question is one of an innocent and factual reality. He was in his father's house, but they did not understand what he meant, that Christ was 100% God and 100% man. They did not fully understand who Jesus was. As Robert Stein alludes to in his commentary, men, many may, may read this, and they're like, what's wrong with Mary and Joseph? Like this kid, like Joseph has had the angel appear to him and say, take this woman as your wife, right? And Mary's had the angel Gabriel say, hey, God's going to make this kid through the Holy Spirit in your womb. I mean, you know, they, they had the Magi visit that, you know, they've had uh, been, been warned in a dream to escape to Egypt. They've had all these miraculous things happen, and they don't understand that he's God. He's the son of God. They don't, they don't quite get that, and they just seem so clueless. And yet we have to think about how, how simple we are as people. And so some 12 years have now transpired since a lot of that miraculous stuff. I mean, probably up at from zero to two, we're looking for all that to happen. So probably at least 10 years have trans, you know, tr uh, kind of went through where we have Jesus' silent years. We don't really hear anything. And, and we can assume most likely and infer most likely that those early years were quite normal apart from Jesus never sinning. They were probably like he had brothers and he had sisters and he had, was just like anybody else. And so they had a sense of normalcy to, to a certain point. Yet this normalcy was shaken very quickly in this account, and it will be shaken very quickly in the future as it begins his ministry, too. And I think we can also infer that Jesus, that we're not going too far with beyond the Scripture here, that Jesus had a pretty normal uh, childhood and even young adulthood because of his brothers. His brothers don't believe in him. His family doesn't believe in him. And so if he was doing miracles and doing all kinds of crazy stuff early in life, like some of the false Gnostic Gospels, which are false teachings, stay away from them, uh, then we would... Uh, we would, we would know that they would have believed him a lot earlier. We see in uh, John 7, 2 through 5, Now the feast of booths was at hand, so his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do, not, uh, if you, if you, if you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. So, you know, yet another fact of Jesus' resurrection that, that he is truly God and truly man, that he did truly raise from the dead, is that one of those brothers was James. 
And James did not believe in Jesus when he was on earth. But yet this same James goes on to write the book that bears his name. This same James uh, ends up dying a martyr for Christ after the resurrection. How amazing is that transformation, my friends, that this same James goes from follow, you know, being like, dude's crazy, go ahead and just do whatever you want to, ignoring him while he's walking the earth, yet later he dies for his half-brother. How amazing is that? And so we see that even Jesus' parents and at least his parents, at least his siblings, did not understand and believe in who he was. Even Mary didn't seem to quite grasp the full picture earlier on. But I want to ask you an important question too. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you do you really know who Jesus is? You may be like his earthly family, know about Jesus. You may know, oh, he's a nice guy. He did this. He lived this time. He did that. I mean, they knew Jesus. They thought they knew Jesus, but they didn't know Jesus. They didn't know who he actually was at the time. Do you know that he is the Messiah who died on the cross for your sins, that he is 100% God, 100% man? Do you know that he is God made flesh who lived a sinless life before his crucifixion on that cross? And most of all, do you know him as your personal Savior? Do you know him as your personal Savior? I can tell you James did when he died. When he, when he was tortured, when he, when he died as a martyr for Christ. If you don't have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, I pray that you, that you believe in him, that you repent, turn away from your sins, and be saved, my friends. I'd love to talk to you after the service if you haven't, if you don't really know personally Jesus Christ. Then verse 51 comes. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. But here we see, even at the cusp of being a Man, by Jewish law, Jesus is still considered a child. And he submits to his earthly parents and goes back to Nazareth at that time. His time is coming. And as we're, we're going to see as we go through this book, it, his time doesn't come at 13. It'll actually be another 18-some years before his time does come, and he starts his ministry at 30 years of age around that. And Mary, again, uh, as Luke so often notes, treasures up these things in her hearts, in, in, in her heart. We can see that Luke, uh, one of those witnesses that we talked about, was most certainly Mary through this as we learn more about her. Next and finally, we move on to our final verse and the final point. Christ being fully God and fully man grew in stature. He grew in stature. And verse 52 says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So Luke again yet stretch, stresses the true humanity of Jesus Christ. He is growing even physically as we see here and this verse goes from being being 12 years old till the next time we see him he'll he will be 30 he will have grown into a a fully man he'll be an adult male and even then some because we mentioned earlier there's kind of always been this tendency to go off the rails with is god always fully man we're going to humanize him or we're going to overly we're going to deify him which you can't overly deify christ but we're going to do it to the point where we ignore his humanity which, which leads to a lack of understanding of our salvation, our need for salvation. He had to be fully man in order to die on the cross. However, David Garland, theologian, asserts that many liberal theologians today portray Jesus as a political revolutionary, a Galilean charismatic holy man, or a wandering peasant. And there's been much effort to, to lean in on the humanity of Christ and ignore his deity. Is okay, we're just going to turn him into a historical man, and we're going to ignore everything else. And there's been three quests for the historical Jesus. If you ever see things 
that have that writing run from them. They're garbage. I'm just going to throw that out now. If you see quests for the historical Jesus, it started in 1770, was the first one. The third one started in 1970, and they are blasphemous. And they are what they're doing is they're trying to unhinge from the Bible. They're trying to study Jesus as just this historical figure. And so they use things. This, this newest one is hyper-focused on the false gospel. It was a Gnostic gospel, uh, which is they thought they knew things that everybody else didn't know. It all flesh was bad. There was just a lot, of, a lot of crazy stuff in Gnostic teaching we talked about as we studied through First John. Uh, they, they studied this false gospel of Thomas, which was written 150 or so years after the, the uh, at least 100 years after the last gospel uh, was written. Um, if, if we look, so it's, it's way later. And then they also uh, really like to spend time in something called, they call the Q document. And this Q document was made up. Like, it doesn't exist. There's no history of this. So if you read things about these things, th they're making up most stuff. And I don't want us to go through, on, through rabbit trails. We could get into a lot of weeds there. But I want you to know that there are so many liberal theologians. When you start to read things on the Internet, you start to read things, and maybe even some commentaries that you may read, that, do, that are working so hard and we say liberal because they're trying to liberate themselves from God's word. If God's word, if you're liberated from this, you can do whatever you want to at that point. Now you are God. God is not God. We're going to try to poke holes here so we can do that. And they're working so hard that they'll even go so far as to make up documents that they haven't even seen, uh, that, that they will you know, try, to, try to invest time in something else to try to fight against God. And my friends, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. He, he grew physically. He's 100% man, 100% God. However, he never quit being God to be man when he came into his incarnation. And we'll always see that skeptics are trying to discredit the Bible, trying to discredit Christ. We see this in Psalm 53. One, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is no one who does good. But remember the truth of 2 Timothy 3.16? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Our God is faithful, my friends. We can trust his word. It is the inerrant word of God. And I just find it so interesting that all these people that are trying to uh, talk about how the, the Bible is a biased book written by biased authors, and that they're actually the ones that are clearly most guilty of bias. The, these authors, yes, they, they, they walked with Christ, but if they would be biased, they'd be biased the opposite way, as we talked about James, who wrote part of the scripture as well. Uh, these men died uh, for, for, for what they knew to be true. No one dies for what they know not to be true. And you see these gospel writers and all these people going as martyrs. Ten of the eleven disciples are martyred for Christ. Obviously, Judas was being the twelfth and, and killed himself there. But, but they're writing with, with the truth in mind. These liberal scholars are actually the ones guilty of the bias that they place upon the Bible writers. They they are trying to be removed from any God that would tell them what they can and cannot do. They, they, they want to be the God of their own life. They, they're biased in their presuppositions against the Bible. And we must see through this double standard. We have a choice to make. Do we believe these New Testament writers in the Scripture as we study through the book of Luke? Do, do we believe Luke as he walks with Paul and, and you know, sees Paul get tortured time after time, and I'm sure he didn't have the easiest way of it either? Or do we believe sinful men and women who wish to discredit whom they refuse to follow? As Paul warns us 
there are those that are not true to the faith. Philippians 2, 21. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ. And I pray we as a church that we are not like that. That, that our, our push, our conviction, what we stand on, that we seek the interests of Christ, not the interests of ourselves or anyone else. We seek the interests of Christ. May we be a church that seeks his interests. As we come to a close, we, we've covered a lot of scripture and we've covered a lot of history, a lot of even apologetics. And, and history and apologetics can be really, really helpful as we study the scripture. But I want you to always remember that our study starts and ends with scripture that it is the only inerrant word of God. Uh, those other things do help us to understand things. They help, to, to, to help us wrap our minds, which are so simple at times, around the complexity of Scripture. And church history helps us understand uh, how the church has moved throughout the ages. But I want us to always remember that the truth starts and ends with the all-sufficient word of God. That it's not church history, church tradition, or even apologetics that we can hang our hat on and say, this is why we know there is a God but this is why we know there is a God, because of his perfect word that he has given to us. And we only know who Jesus Christ is, not by a historical quest, not by trying to make up documents to try to make him look like who we want him to be, not by just saying we're going to be Jesus-only movement and we're, only gonna, we're not going to talk about anything divisive that's in this Bible. We're only going to talk about this Jesus. Who is that Jesus? The only way we know who that Jesus is is through his word. And so may we study his word, may we hold it in high regards, because that is the only way. This is the revealed word of God. We're able to see who Jesus is because of his word. And so today we've seen his, his early years, his from being 40 till 12, and then thereafter. And we've seen that he's went through some growing pains. And you know what? We, we go through growing pains too. Theologically speaking, as we study the Bible, it hurts sometimes, because you know what you have to do? You have to die to yourself. You have to die to your culture. There are things that you read that go against everything that you've been taught your entire life. You look back at, at school, and, and they're telling you self-esteem. You need to think really high of yourself. Think you're awesome. Think you're amazing. And you read the Bible, it says, you, you see Paul say, of whom I'm the worst of sinners. I'm the most horrible person you've ever met. That's, Paul didn't have very good self-esteem. We need to teach him a thing or two. You know, it's like you're going to read so many things that are going to cause you to, your whole worldview just to blow up because this world is sinful. And the things that you're taught by even many of your teachers that meant to do what was right, I'm not saying that many of these people did not mean that they were trying to help, but they don't, if they don't know the word of God, they can't help you. This is the only thing that is 100% true that you can guarantee. So you're going to have some growing pains, and it's going to hurt to die to yourself. It's going to hurt to see things that say you need to, to lay your life down for the Lord. You need to give up things that maybe you really love for Him, and it's going to be hard, and you're going to go through growing pains like Christ did as he walked this earth, and he had to learn how to navigate this earth. Luckily, he never sinned, and so he, but he does know what it's like to live this life. And so as you struggle through things, as you try to navigate, well, how, do I, how am I a good son to my parents that maybe aren't believers? How do I honor my parents but yet still honor the Lord first and foremost? Uh, how do I navigate when my parents are telling me they don't want me to be, don't want me to be this missionary because they're scared I'm going to get hurt, but God is clearly telling me I need to go and do that? How do we navigate the, the difficulties of those things? Or you're a parent and you're getting called to go somewhere and do something. You're like, well, what, what's going to happen to my kids? You know, I mean, if we move from here to there, their friends are not, all this kind of stuff. And, and you have to be willing to die to everything to live for Christ. And Christ will help you through. They'll help your, he'll help your kids through. help your parents through. We have to trust him. My friends, I pray that, that we continue to keep our eye on the word of God, on Jesus Christ, the Jesus of the Bible and that he will be our anchor. 
and he'll be more and more revealed to you. Things will become more and more clear to you, and you'll become more and more like him. And may we seek to know him more and more, church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for your word. Lord, we've covered a lot of, of depth today. Uh, I know sometimes our, our brains may even hurt with all of that truth, all of these things kind of come in. I just pray that, that you, um, you use this to, to glorify yourself. I pray that you, that you help us to, to see your word as the inerrant, infallible, true word of God. Lord, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for the worship we've had so far. Thank you for just uh, the gathering of the saints and just, just so, such a, a blessing to be with your people. God, I pray that you protect us as we go throughout this next week, that you guard us, that you help us to stand firm for you in a world that is crooked and depraved, that is bent on rebellion, and help us to, to honor you with our lives, with our words, with our thoughts and our actions, and help us to be willing and able to, to share your word, your love with those around us. If anyone here does not know you, I'd love to talk to them about what it means to be a true follower of you, to really know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Lord, we thank you, we love you, and we praise you. And amen.